Welcome to another episode of Celluloid Citizens. As always, I am Sean M. Thompson. And I'm Christopher Burke. And on the episode this evening, we're going to be discussing 1996's The Frighteners, starring Michael J. Fox and Trini Alvarado, Peter Dobson, John Astin, who I'm wondering if John Astin is Sean Astin's father now, but I didn't bother yep, to check. It is. It is? It is. Okay, that's, good. Uh, that's my boy that makes Gomez. Sense. There's actually from... the connection, then. Um, yep. Yeah. Since obviously this is a Peter Jackson film who went on to do The Lord of the Rings. Uh, Jeffrey Combs, D. Wallace, Jake Busey, Chai McBride, Jim Fife, Troy Evans, Arlie Ermey. I mean, a lot of people. And there's yeah. also a cameo by Peter Jackson himself. Oh, I missed that. And it was written and directed by Fran Walsh and Peter Jackson. Um... What did you think of the movie? Have you seen it Yeah, you know, this is a movie that I have kind of seen bits and pieces of off and on, probably just about ever since it came out. I I vaguely recall seeing the previews and wanting to see it when it came out, but I I never really watched it all the way through until probably, I don't know, six years, seven years after it had been released. And I've probably only seen it straight through once, maybe twice at the most, and it's been over 10 years uh, until, you know, the the preceding week, so... Uh, a lot of it was really hazy, except for about the first half hour, because it seems like stuff would always just happen and interrupt me, and I wouldn't get back to the movie after that. Uh, so part of it was fresh, and part of it was familiar, which was interesting. Uh, just trying to piece together my memories of the movie, but there's a lot that I just didn't even have the slightest memory of. Yeah, see, um, this was one of... I don't often talk about this, because it's... Although it is past statute of limitations, so I don't think it matters <laughs> anymore. Don't worry, it's nothing bad, bad. Um my parents used to have a black box. So basically they would get the movie channels like in the house, but only from their TV. So there were a few films that were like sort of pivotal films for me, but there was that added element of like, it would be if my parents weren't home and I could sneak into their room and watch them on this, like basically pirated pay-per-view channel. Nice. So that was the way I watched the Frighteners. Um, Ravenous. I believe it was how I watched the first Scream. Maybe Stir of Echoes also. Okay. Stir of Echoes is another one that I saw. So I think of this as like a black box <laughs> movie, which is not, it doesn't, it doesn't mean anything other than in my mind, but. Yeah. Well, Hey, it's all about uh, the association. I, have, I had since uh, bought it on Blu-ray, so I've paid for it now. There you go. Support the artists when you can. That's what we like to see. Yeah, this would have been <laughs> this would have been yeah, 1996, so, you know, many years ago. Um, but yes, no, I like this film a lot. Um I'm I'm always pleasantly surprised with it too cuz there are some films that I really liked as a child and then sort of liked in my 20s and then as soon as I hit my 30s it was like, eh. But this is one that just for whatever reason I can keep coming back to. Yeah, you know, I mean, for all the times that I've seen fragments of it, you know, I, I it doesn't it seems like definitely the kind of thing I can just sort of have on in the background and catch 10 or 15 minutes or I can watch the whole thing if I have the time. Uh, you know, just it's very Predator 2 in that way. <laughs> now, there's one I haven't seen. I think I don't know if anyone else is like this, but like I've seen Predator 2 all the way through maybe twice, but I've seen parts of it like 50 times. Hey, there's a certain there's a certain value in that kind of movie that it's it's usually stuff that's rewatchable, but. I think it was also just on TNT all the time on a Saturday, and I'd be hanging out with my friend and just sort of be in the background. Yeah, there you go. I used to watch some of those. There was a point in time where Clash of the Titans was one of the regular ones on either TBS or TNT, so I have I have those kinds of attachments to uh, to that particular movie. 
Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah, a little preliminary information on the film. As stated, came out in 1996, written and directed by uh, Peter Jackson, uh, also written by, with Fran Walsh, who I believe is his wife, either that or his production partner. Um, let's see. Oh, Robert Zemeckis also produced, and he was the one that got in touch with them to make the film, and originally this was supposed to be a Tales from the Crypt sort of spinoff, which is, I think is interesting. Yeah. Because uh, going back... It sort of has that vibe, but it, it's not entirely like if you hadn't told me it was originally supposed to be a Tales from the Crypt thing, I wouldn't have known. Yeah, it's definitely, I think, a bit lighter. Uh, and, and the you know, like the Danny Elfman soundtrack adds a lot to that. And so you, you can sort of see where it might have diverged once it became not a Tales from the Crypt thing. But like his Peter Jackson's earlier stuff, you can definitely see how that might line him up to do a Tales from the Crypt with stuff like uh, Bad Taste yeah, or Dead or Alive. Yeah, I think or Dead Alive. He's yeah, he's had an interesting career where originally he did those like ultra indie uh New Zealand horror films such as Dead Alive and um uh what was the first one he did? Was it Brain Dead or Bad Taste or one of those I think I well, I did Bad oh, Taste, I know, you know that. What? Uh I think it Bad Taste. And I think I actually meant Brain Dead instead of Dead Alive. I haven't seen either of those, so I get um, mixed up. But- <laughs> But anyway, and then he went on and did well. He also did Meet the Feebles, which is just bizarre. I don't even yeah. know how that fits in. That it's one, just like filthy Muppets. <laughs> that one I saw, and I was kind of expecting it to be like gross and ridiculous, but also funny. And I just kind of didn't find it all that funny, so I sort of filed it away and haven't really thought about it all that much since. But yeah, it's sort of a weird, so weird part of his oeuvre. <laughs> um, damn, I actually said it right for the first time in my entire life. <laughs> Normally I say ooh. There you go. But anyway, I am American. Uh, but no, he uh, also went on to do Heavenly Creatures, which was actually fairly critically acclaimed from what I uh, remember reading. Yeah, it really was. Which was, um, yeah, I believe it was Kate Winslet, and I forget the other actress's well, name. But then he went on from that to do, I believe, The Frighteners, which is, so that's sort of an interesting trajectory. And then, of course, he went on to do Lord of the Rings and become a billionaire. <laughs> and he hasn't seemed to do a whole lot these days. I guess uh, I guess he's doing okay and sitting back. You know, he had, like, he hopped in to do the Hobbit um, trilogy, which was fine. But to be fair, that was originally supposed to be Guillermo del Toro. And I don't know if it was supposed to be a trilogy. Because mm. Guillermo had signed on to do the first film, at least. And he walked away, like a lot of directors do, because he wasn't getting the budget he wanted. And then, of course, Peter Jackson just swooped in. He was like, I'll just do a trilogy. Yeah, that was one I just did not have the energy for. I, I like the first Lord of the Rings, but high fantasy like is, is has become less and less my thing over the years. So by the time the second and third one were out, you know, I, I finished watching those Lord of the Rings, but I, you know, I liked the first one a lot more and I just kind of lost interest over time. So The Hobbit. Yeah, I mean, I own the box set, but that's because my partner is huge into like high fantasy stuff. Um I've seen all those Hobbits, but they were, yeah, they just kind of, I mean, Lord of the Rings, it almost made sense as three movies because there were three books, obviously. Hobbit is one book that they somehow stretched into three movies, which just seemed, it just seems so padded. Yeah. Yeah. But Heavenly Creature. But anyway, we're not talking about any of that. We're talking about The Frighteners, which, um, yeah, I like a lot, obviously. Yeah, I, I think, um, well, first of all, my favorite trilogy of all the trilogies is Back to the Future. So I really appreciate, um the Zemeckis contribution here it definitely has like a nice balance of like 
kind of a Back to the Future vibe, but then they have Michael J. Fox as like one of the least wholesome people he's ever probably been cast as, uh, which is which is oh, a nice yeah. thing. And also, what's interesting is I, I, you know, he's had roles since, but this was like I want to say his last like major acting role because of the uh, he has Parkinson's, right? Yeah, yeah, it sounds about right. Yeah, I can't think so of anything I later. Think this than was that. like one of the last ones before his Parkinson's got so bad he couldn't really commit to doing like full stuff. Although he has a cameo in a Curb Your Enthusiasm episode, which is really funny. Oh, nice. I haven't seen Curb. He plays himself and like uh, Larry's staying in New York under him in an apartment and he starts to hear stomping. And so Larry goes up and he's like, you know, I know you can't control it, but like you're like stomping around a lot. So if you could, and he's like, Larry, I have Parkinson's, you know, typical Curb Your Enthusiasm type stuff. Yeah. Ooh, awkward. <laughs> yeah, basically. Um, but basically the plot is Michael J. Fox's character, who I obviously instantly memory dumped the name of. Um, Frank Bannister. Frank Bannister, yes. So Frank uh, was in a car accident with his wife. His wife died and he lived and now he can see ghosts. And he's sort of this tragic figure where... He was an architect, but now the way he makes money is he's more or less an undead con man where he gets the ghosts he can talk to to go into houses and intentionally, you know, haunt them so he can come in and claim he's, you know, cleared the place. Yeah, they they make sure to introduce him as a, you know, kind of basically a scumbag. Uh, and, and it's a little while before you learn the, about his backstory and how there are some sympathetic uh, things in the background there that have kind of turned him into what he is. Uh, but that, that kind of comes a little bit later on. Uh, but it's just great to see him being just a total, just jerk, not really caring about anybody. It's, it's very opposite the usual kind of Michael J. Fox role that you might see. Yeah. Like he's not like a wholesome, you know, he's definitely not Marty McFly in this one. Like he's very much like he's zooming his car around, driving like a maniac and like running over people's fences and just (laughs) not caring. And what's interesting, I think about the film and its setup is the first 20 minutes, you don't actually see him, you don't actually see any of the ghosts. Mm-hmm. So you're sort of in the same position as like some of his clients where you just assume he's a con man. Yeah. Because you don't know that, you don't know that in this universe yet, like ghosts actually exist. Yeah. Well, there's the the opening scene where they're in the Bradley house and she's like, there seems to be something crawl along the walls. Well, so. okay. I mean, yes, there is that. So, you know, you know, something exists, but at the very least, you don't know that he yeah. can talk to ghosts. Like, you don't know if they're actually there Yeah, to the viewer, not. they seem to be real, but who knows in-universe yet, you know, how they're perceived by Michael J. Fox's character. Right, but then after about the 20-minute mark, we go back to his... I really love the set for his uh, unfinished dream house. It's, I don't know, I just find it really neat. It's like this half-finished house where, like, most of the walls aren't even built. There's just, like, the foundation. And there's like, you know, plastic, like blocking off some of the windows. And but this is where Michael J. Fox, Frank Bannister lives. We find out later it's because, you know, his wife died and he's been sort of fucked up ever since and hasn't had the energy to, you know, either knock down the house and move to an apartment or another house or to finish the house. Yeah, actually, I kind of I like that. I like that. That's his actual living place. And it just kind of it. Sort of takes me back to when I was a kid and I used to play in like old building foundations and, and half constructed houses. And, you know, it's it's sort of 
has an adventurous feel to it, even though it's also sad because it, it's, I mean, he's effectively homeless because that's not really a home. <laughs> so. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's a part where they show him on the roof and he's using a chainsaw. And at first you're like, oh, is he like trying to fix the house? But no, he's like cutting into the wood of the house to get firewood to make a fire. So that, that was yeah. a nice touch. Like he just doesn't care at all. He'll just cut into his own house just for some firewood. And he doesn't really have furniture either. Yeah, I don't remember where he sleeps exactly. Maybe it's on a mattress or something. I don't know. It didn't even seem like there was a bed. Maybe. I didn't even see a bed. Yeah, but. Maybe in his car. Who knows? Um, But yeah, so the first 20 minutes, you know, we'll go into the first scene. Um, It's D. Wallace who, just get used to this. I don't remember character names. Let me actually get the, let me get the IMDb in front of me so I don't sound like an idiot this time. Um, Patricia Bradley. Patricia Bradley, yes. So it's Patricia Bradley, played by Dee Wallace, and she's running around this house that her mother owns, and the rug is alive. Like, there's, it's that, um, what I like about this scene is it's like they watched Friday, or, sorry, it's like they watched Nightmare on Elm Street, and the one scene where Freddy is sort of, like, in the wall and pushing through with his silhouette. And it was like, they were like, let's just make a whole movie like that. <laughs> Cause this is, you know, 10 minutes or it might be five minutes of, um, yeah, this apparition kind of like being in the wall and then it's in a mattress and then it's in the rug itself. And she's running around screaming, being terrorized. Yeah. And it's a very exciting scene. You know, it's very, over the top, this old woman is saying, like, the wretched shall be punished, and she gets a shotgun and shoots at the carpet, and then this kind of black demony type thing, like, shoots from the carpet. Um, It's a nice way to start the movie. Yeah, it throws you right into it. Like, you know, a lot of horror movies, like, it, it reminds you of a, the middle of Poltergeist or something, where just all hell is broken loose, only instead of waiting to the midpoint, you're just thrust into the middle of it, and all you really know is that it concludes with an old lady saying some righteous shit and firing a shotgun at furniture or a ghost or whatever the hell she, <laughs> whether she hits anything or not is, is open. But, it's open uh, debate. But yeah, no, I just really like, I mean, what I appreciate about the film is even though it's a horror film, the pacing is very much like a comedy or an action film. In that yeah. like, it's a horror film, but like, it's never... It'll have horrific scenes, but it never seems too preoccupied with taking itself too seriously as a horror film. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I really think of this as, you know, in the way that Back to the Future is a sci-fi comedy, this has a similar kind of balanced tone that's really just, it's the same, it's a balance of horror and comedy. And it, the pacing feels very similar to me. Like, there's really not that many dull moments in the Back to the Future movies, and there's really not yeah. here, even though it's almost a two-hour movie, there's a lot that happens. It's true. Yeah, I always forget this is two hours. I always think it's like an hour 30 because it just moves so quickly and there's so much in it. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it helps that they have so many recognizable actors because like, yeah, it's like, like you get a little cameos, bit of time with this person um, and a little bit one, of time over here. <laughs> yeah, one, I think, great thing about this film is like some of the cameos are almost as good or better than the main uh, characters. Like Jeffrey Combs, yeah. for instance, like... Every time he's on screen, he like carries the movie. It's insane. Like, cause he's what literally just like insane. <laughs> that is one of the strangest character creations I've ever seen. And I, I honestly did not remember that character at all from previous viewings. And 
I was just like, what the hell is with this guy? I'm lost here. But it was it's it's such a great performance. And it's great too because you know, yeah, he is sort of like this third wheel. That's like he's the, he's an FBI occult specialist who's sent in to the town to investigate. But it's like he's he's sort of on the periphery for a lot of the movie, and he'll have you know important moments. But it's still sort of as this like person who's never really in the loop. Yeah, he's like a subplot basically that becomes part of the main plot a lot later than you might think. Uh, but you know, it does it does eventually become significant what he's what he's going about. But it, it just seems like a minor. I honestly thought he might only be in one scene or something when it first when I was watching it through this time. But then yeah, if you've you know, only seen clips or if you've only seen bits and pieces of it, you wouldn't realize. But yeah, like watching it all the way through, you realize like it's just sort of this neat little added stitch of like putting the movie together that makes it so interesting and i think sort of keeps it from getting too stale yeah because like there's there's threats from so many different directions it lets you have a two-hour movie because it takes the time to to play out those threats to the main character and the the other quote-unquote good guys uh yeah there's the the stuff with the with jeffrey combs's character there's the stuff with you know the weird death character and there's the cops you know there, there's all kinds of different angles so it a lot's happening but it's happening for a reason and, and that's part of why they have such an ensemble cast yeah um so we get into the movie proper it's a i read up about this because i'm always confused you know i think the first time i saw this i thought is this supposed to be like around california like northern california maybe um it's supposed to be like midwestern u.s I don't, I've never really been extensively in Midwestern U.S., so I can't say for sure, but to me, it looks a lot like New Zealand. Well, I'm from the periphery of the Midwest, and I would say that, honestly, what I found interesting about the the location is that they really made it still seem like just a movie set. Like, there's really no place that I've been that looks quite like Fairweather, or is it Fairweather? Um, I think so. And it like I think that they went out of their way to kind of make it still feel like a movie set, like in the way that Hill Valley and Back to the Future, like it. Yeah, it, they, they definitely they tried to make, to make it like it still in every like town that. USA, even though there are specific sorts of geography. You know, like it's very hilly and, um, you know, sort of almost like Pacific Northwest seeming in terms of how much it's raining. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, I, I don't remember really seeing a town that is, has that kind of combination of hills and no, woods. No, I mean, that's and, why I think of California, because like, possibly around parts of California, you might see that. But that's, a, I mean, that's about it. Because like, you know, there are places with mountainous regions, but you wouldn't see, I guess, that sort of vegetation. Yeah. But it is New well, Zealand. It has a very, record. I'm get, this is an elaborate way of saying they filmed this all in New Zealand and it's supposed to be America. Oh, okay. Well, that's that makes sense. It's very green. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, yeah, the film, it, it's interesting in terms of the, the setting and the, the set dressing and all of that because it's like it's almost hard to pin down what time period it is too because you got Michael J. Fox or Frank Bannister in this like old beat-up jalopy car. But then you have people in like Jeep Cherokees that look like they're from, you know, when this film was released, like 1996. Yeah. It feels very Tim Burton-ish where it's just kind of like, 
it's it's an idyllic place that doesn't quite exist, but you can easily imagine how a real place could turn into it almost. Yeah, and I think I the know. score by Danny Elfman lends itself to that too, which yeah. is also a huge part of the film because I think if someone else had scored this film, it I don't know, it would have played very differently. Yeah, but it keeps the movie moving. You know, he's got that zippy kind of well, it's it's always very quick paced. Uh, it's not necessarily always memorable. Like I couldn't think of the main theme off the top of my head, but at the same time, it's got that like the Roger Rabbit adventure movie kind of feel to it, where things don't really slow down for very long. Yeah, but um, so we are eventually introduced to Frank Bannister, who is uh, I don't remember the exact first time we meet him. I think he's actually showing up at a funeral. Um, yeah. there's sort of the beginning goes into this, I, I believe it's a news report about the town and how they've had all these mysterious deaths where people are having these massive heart attacks and dying, except none of them are necessarily that unhealthy. And some of them are very young. Yep. And we, we also learn a bit of a backstory about Jake Busey's character that, that comes into play, uh, where he's basically, he's a mass murderer who shot up a hospital. Yeah. He's and- like a Charles Starkweather type and they go out of their way to kind of draw that illusion because they mentioned Starkweather. He mentions, the character mentions Starkweather in that he yeah. killed 12 people and Starkweather apparently killed 11. So in the it's like he's, uh, documentary, it it's like, got me a score of 12. Yeah, so he, he seems to see it as a contest and then the the, the number counts uh, come back into play when, when Frank Bannister starts seeing them on people's heads coming up soon. And I did think it was funny that his name is Johnny Bartlett. Because obviously we both know Matthew Bartlett. <laughs> That's true. That's and I'm true. like, huh. <laughs> also the same initials as Jake Busey. Oh, yeah, Johnny Bartlett. That's right, JB. Um, and Jake Busey is great in this movie, too. Like, This was like the, the role that Jake Busey was born to play. Really, any Busey is pretty great in most movies, I'd say. But, uh, yeah, I mean, the only other thing I can think of off the top of my hand... Off the top of my head that I've seen Jake Busey in his SFW, and I think he was in like one scene in that movie, if I remember right. But it's always nice to see a Busey family member in in the pictures. Yeah. Um, and he's just got, he just is, I mean, the Buseys are great, but they're able to look like maniacs very easily. So that, any type of, <laughs> anytime you need a maniac, just get a Busey. That's right. Um, but so, yeah. Um so the reason we're introduced, or the reason we find out about Johnny Bartlett's character is that Lucy, played by Trini Alvarado, uh, basically, oh, she's a, I believe she's a nurse. And she goes to she's check on Dee Wallace's character, who has cut her hand, which was shown in, like, the very first scene. And her mother seems very oddly overbearing and yep. borderline abusive. Yeah, but she's a she's a doctor visiting uh, for home care and uh, her usual doctors like out sick, she mentions. And that's why Dr. Linsky's has gone out here. And, but she seems very concerned about Patricia Bradley's situation, uh, you know, out of concern. about you know, this, her mother seems abusive. Uh, and so she keeps trying to I think, get a word with her privately or, or, you know, ask if she needs help. And the, the mother is very clearly like in control and says, you know, I can have her committed at basically any time I want. Because I know the truth or something like that. She she alludes to something about knowing the truth, uh, but we don't really know what yet. Yeah, yeah. And um, 
Yeah, she's, you know, she basically gets it into Lucy's head. Like, she's not who you think she is, which prompts uh, Lucy to find this documentary on the Bartlett murders and um, how uh, Patricia had a part in them. She was very young. She was like, I believe like 18, like a teenager, basically. 15. 15, Um, if I remember right. Was she 15? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So that's what she was tried as a minor, I think. That's why oh, she was yeah, ended up yeah, ended right. up on house arrest. But so something. she was tried as an accomplice uh with Bartlett. And there's always been sort of um it's always been sort of vague to people whether she had a hand in it or whether she was sort of an unwitting accomplice. Yeah. Which is which plays into the rest of the film. Uh but anyway. And somewhere in there, Frank Bannister runs over um Ray Linsky, who is Lucy's husband's, uh, his fence, like the white picket yep. fence he has in front of his house. He comes out and delivers what might be my favorite line of the movie. He screams at him, you ruptured my lawn. <laughs> <laughs> and this guy's just like ridiculous and short shorts, very obviously a, a health, nut, well, fitness nut of some kind. Like he's just, he, he wears, he gives off that vibe very clearly from the beginning. Yeah, uh, and so Frank kind Bannister, of an I mean, it's like two scumbags, like, head-to-head. <laughs> <laughs> so, and Ray is like, Bannister's you gotta pay for my like, fence, yeah. and Frank is like, yeah, yeah, okay, and then he runs over, he intentionally backs over his garden gnome. But he takes care to leave his business card. But he does leave the card, yeah. Um, because you learn that one of the ways that Frank deals with things is he gets his ghost to come in and mess up somebody's house so he can come in and pretend to save the day. It's a good grift if he can get it. Yeah. So that's basically what happens, you know, after Lucy's watching the documentary, the, the bed starts floating and there's like dolls coming to life and all sorts of weird crap. So they call Frank up. He shows up with what looks like a toaster. I'm not sure what the device <laughs> is supposed to be. Some kind of ocular device where he's, I guess he can see an infrared. Who knows what he's supposed oh, to be looking at. Oh, he has the goggles, but he also has this weird, like, contraption that he pulls a little baggie out of. That looks like yeah. it could be a bread maker. <laughs> but he basically, you get the impression that this is a very fly-by-your-seat-of-your-pants seat kind of operation he's running. Yeah, and he's got a pistol full of holy water. <laughs> and apparently it works. But before he leaves, he does see a number, like... And it's a pretty cool effect. It's like this number carved into um, Ray's forehead that's like sort of glowing. Yeah, it's like 37 maybe, something in that neighborhood. I think it's 37 or something like that. Oh, that reminds me, by the way, I just had my 37th birthday. So I did not appreciate the beginning of this movie where it was (laughs) like, blah, 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 dead at 37 of a massive heart attack. I'm like, hey. That's... Not cool. I was a lot younger when I watched this the first time. <laughs> Not cool, man. Um, but anyway, yes. So Frank but then important. actually becomes like very seriously like you're in danger. And, you know, Ray is still sort of thinking he's a con man. So he says, just like, get the hell out of my house. Yeah, the whole time Lucy seems pretty sympathetic and credulous uh, toward Frank Bannister. And then Ray's like yelling at him and skeptical and just and just saying, just get this done get out of my house and and so there's i mean they're still carrying on the argument from earlier in the in the movie when you know frank ran over his lawn essentially he hasn't cooled down since then yeah no it's true um 
And okay, so let's see from there. Oh, this is when we finally go back to Frank's house and see the actual ghosts. And the effect, I think it still holds up. Interestingly enough, you know, 20, well, let's say 96, almost 20 years later. Yeah, 25 years. It does. I, I think part of it is because so much of the, the set feels like purposely artificial feeling. So the, the artificiality of the computer stuff just kind of blends in with that in a way, whereas a lot of movies will try to just make you not notice it. In this in this case, like it's well done, but they also aren't trying so hard to pretend that it's not CGI. So it, it really doesn't come across as a problem. Right. Because yeah, I mean, it's not it supposed good. to be. I think I think when you're doing things in CG that you wouldn't really be able to see normally, it's not so bad and it tends to hold up better. Whereas if you're trying to do, say, a wolf, like if you go back to even stuff from 2010 and look at a CG wolf, you're like, oof. Yeah. And you can represent ghosts in a million different ways, but you can only represent a wolf in so many ways that either cohere or differ from what people would really see yeah, in the world. Yeah. So. But th- I mean, the effects really hold up and... I don't remember if I said this, I might have said this off air, but I had watched a behind the scenes documentary about um, the making of this movie and they went into how basically like this was the training ground for Peter Jackson and his team to learn the style of visual effects that would go on to inform the Lord of the Rings series. And so like he got, like he was getting the team and they were getting their computers together and their tech together to learn how to do like heavily involved CG stuff in a film. Interesting. Yeah. And I mean, the Lord of the Rings stuff, you know, it's, it's not one of my favorite movies, but it still holds up pretty well. I've, I've seen it a few times. It does. In the last five yeah, years or so. Interestingly enough, um, there's this Grim Reaper character in The Frighteners that if you watch Lord of the Rings, they basically use the same model for the race. Uh, the the ring race in the Lord of the Rings. And it's just, you know, it was a few years later, so they obviously had it a bit more polished. But all of the ghosts, I, I really like the look of all of the ghosts. It's like borderline cartoonish. Like they're, you know, basically just people, but like they sort of are this like kind of blue white tint on them. Yeah. And they're it's like, like vaguely Roger corporeal, Rabbit-y. but they can get like, you know, it is cartoonish. They can get like fly spray in their face and their face kind of comes apart for a second or they can go through a car engine and get split up a little bit. Yeah. They get chopped up into pieces at some point maybe, but, uh, that's a, what a, what a trio that is accompanying Frank Bannister there. You've got the judge, uh, played by Gomez Adams, the original John Aston. Yeah, uh, that's true. Which is always a highlight to see. I used to also catch him in Duckman when I watched that. He, he has a couple of bit parts in Duckman too. So I, I don't know. I just love to see him in anything. It doesn't matter. That's true. And then there's, and I wasn't uh, really familiar with the other two actors, but they do a great job. Um, Shia McBride and Jim Fife. One is basically like a guy that died in the '70s, so he's got like a big afro and like '70s suit. And the other one seems like a nerd from the '50s. Yeah, he would be like an accountant working at in the office uh, in, in Scranton or or something. Yeah. Um, um, but it's just so like basically a great, oh, and yeah, you know the judge, and it's just a great. Like group, you know, there's a lot, there's a nice give and take. Yeah. Good dynamic. Right number of ghosts, right number of minor characters. Yeah. Um, but, you know, they basically have an argument like, what are you guys doing to me? Like, you got to do better. I'm very broke. They're going to, the bank is going to take my house. So we got to get better at this. 
Yeah, and then also during that, um, you know, either it was during this scene or just before it started, you know, they the ghost, his ghost companions reveal they don't know who did the numbering on Ray's forehead, which is why Bannister's taking that seriously as a threat against Ray, and you know, part of the tension of the the end of the preceding scene. Yeah, because you know, initially he says, "Like, what was with the number? That was weird." And they're like, "We didn't do that." So, yep, yep. yeah. Um, and he has a, a nice talk with the judge uh, who talks about, you know, like there's this hound dog that hangs out with the judge, which actually come to think of it. What happens to the dog? You know, I don't remember. They don't That's actually specify. Question. So the dog is ostensibly still around, but unresolved plot point. Unresolved. We need a whole movie now. Um, <laughs> no, but so the judge but, has this sort of heart to tar- bleh, heart to heart with uh frank and says you know like my jawbone came off and the dog was running around with it He's, he has this oh, pretty yeah. funny line about don't tell the boys but my ectoplasm's gone dry and frank's like oh, okay yep I'll, I'll tell i won't tell them um but he basically more or less says you know like in this universe ghosts can sort of they don't age necessarily but they sort of like degrade yeah He's he says that he's dying or something to that effect, basically. So like he's just falling apart, basically. Yeah, because like the longer you've been a ghost and around, the more your like dead ghost body falls apart in this universe. Yep. But Michael J. Fox or Frank, you know, he tries to, he convinces him like, "Come on, I need you. You're like my main guy." So convinces him not to go back to the cemetery and go back to his body. His real dead body, rather. Yep. And then they they go to do another haunting. Um, only in the midst of it, you know, they're trying to haunt some, you know, kind of upper class uh, household where there's servants and so forth. And the you know the ghost crew is swinging these babies around to try to spook the mom and and extort some money out of her with with Frank. Uh, but you know when Frank shows up, it turns out that she has seen a newspaper article that's come out that has outed him as a con artist. Yeah, which is uh, not great timing for Frank because he had, I don't remember if I explicitly said, but he gets a letter in the mail from the bank saying if he can't give them 15 grand, they're going to take his quote unquote house. (laughs) Yep. So, you know, this is just insult to injury right here. And uh, it's also very purposely engineered to be a very small town feel. So one newspaper article is pretty much going to destroy you business-wise, because there's probably not a whole lot of people who aren't going to hear about it. Yeah, and I mean, it's a fairly damning article. It calls him a con man, somebody who preys on the bereaved, which isn't that far off, to be fair. Uh, but he obviously, you know, storms into the paper, and he's like, what the hell? What are you What are you doing to me? Like, what am I supposed to do now? And uh, Magda, who's the name of the, the head uh, editor, I guess, of the newspaper? Head writer, maybe? I think she's the editor-in-chief or the publisher, maybe the owner. Uh, I don't she know. She is very not sympathetic. She does not believe him in any way. And she does know his backstory about how his wife died, which is the first hint we get about his wife having died. Yep. Uh, and so, you know, she argues that she's doing a public service for the, the people of Fairwater. And, um, you know, after the argument, when Michael J. Fox, you know, exits the, the newspaper building, um, you know, he gets hit by a car when he's leaving and sees Dr. Linsky in, in a funeral, uh, a funeral procession. And then ghost, the ghost of Ray runs into him 
So, you know, Frank can be hit by ghosts and, and not they might not pass through. Yeah, the rules are a little wonky in that it seems like sometimes he can hit the ghosts and other times his body passes through them. And vice versa, sometimes they can hit him and sometimes they don't. It's because of ectoplasm reasons is, is what they say once or twice, but we don't really know all the details, but I don't think we really need to. He gets he gets knocked down. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, so he makes uh, Frank drive, or Ray makes Frank drive him to his own funeral. You know, obviously Lucy's fairly bereaved. Uh, Michael J. Fox goes to talk to her and says, like, okay, I can actually, I've been talking with Ray. He says he loves you, and there's this pretty funny scene next where there's been a hint of where they're going, because... I mean, Ray is a douche. Ray is a classic douche character. Absolutely. Um, but he says, you know, like while he's in bed with his wife, he says, We're, our anniversary is coming up and I got us a date at Excalibur, which seems basically like when Frank and Lucy are there, more or less like medieval times, but sit down. Yeah. Yep. Definitely not. It's like medieval theme. So it looks pretty goddamn ridiculous. You can tell pretty much from the beginning that Ray and Dr. Linsky are not exactly on the same wavelength. No, he's pretty overbearing and uh, douchey. I, I, I can't, I'm not sure what other word, asshole. Yeah, he seems like a dick. There's a, yeah, there's a lot of the doucheness going on. More alpha than alpha, only it's kind of pathetic, which, I, I don't I mean, that's probably the point, but anyway. Lucy has some sympathies toward Frank. She has a soft spot for him from the very beginning, for whatever reason, when he from when he showed up to well, the I house. I think she actually, I mean, she's she's a doctor, so she's fairly sympathetic to people, and I think she, you know, just actually listens to people and is a good judge of character. So she kind of gets the sense that even if even if ghosts aren't real, that like he believes they're real. Yeah, no, that's that's a good good way to put it. I'd say I didn't really think of it that way, but that, that's that's definitely the vibe that that comes from her. But she also just might believe that ghosts are real, because ghosts are real in this universe. She's open-minded enough. Uh, but anyway, so there's this funny... I think one of the interesting things about this film is the conceit that there's this... You know, there's a couple... I mean, mainly it's Frank can usually see the ghosts, and no one else in the room can. So it's like the scene will be going on, and then there's this separate scene with him and the ghosts. And it's sort of like him trying to either hide the fact he can see a ghost, or to interact with the ghosts in between the living characters. But this is a classic example of that type of scene because he's sort of interpreting uh, what Ray says to tell to Lucy. And sometimes he's on, sometimes he'll say what Ray wants him to say, and other times he'll just say what he wants to say. Like at one point, Lucy is like, Can you ask him what happened to the $16,000? And Ray's ghost goes, Oh no, I, I blew it on a bla bad investment, but don't tell her that. And, you know. <laughs> Frank immediately goes, he blew it on a bad investment. Yeah, but then later he lies to her. And then Ray gets really mad and he's like, oh no, Ray said he has to go. <laughs> so, Yeah, I mean, at some point he, he lies to her about, about something because he's also a bit conflicted and he he, know, he knows that part of himself is no good and he doesn't want to get her like involved in all of his bullshit. So at some point, like he says that Ray's gone, like so that he can kind of end it without her asking too many more questions, I think. I don't remember exactly the details of how that goes. Well, there's a couple interpretations. The other one is I think he just has a crush on her and he realizes there's some sort of spark and that now, you know, her husband is dead. That's, yeah, there's definitely that too. And he's not the most scrupulous person as established. True. But I think, no, I think a lot of it is also he doesn't want her to get hurt because, you know, he's got that sort of chip on his shoulder from his wife dying. Yeah. 
Yeah, but before that, we uh, we meet Arlie Ermy a little bit before that, uh, back in the cemetery. Oh yeah, that's right. He, when he's in the when he's in the cemetery going to uh, Ray's funeral, Arlie Ermy is there, basically playing his character from Full Metal Jacket. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, I mean it's basically the same character. Yeah, he's basically a drill instructor. Uh, Only he's a ghostly drill instructor. Um, which is sort of cute, you know. It's cute that how they have these sort of cartoonish characters like as ghosts. Yeah, I mean, who doesn't want to watch him just do his drill sergeant bit for a few minutes? You can put that in almost any movie and it'll be fun. But he, but he's basically the the protector of the cemetery and like he's in charge of all the ghosts in that cemetery and he he has like a 80-year rotation and then somebody else comes in. So they kind of get his character introduced and and they introduce the fact that he's more powerful than a lot of other ghosts. Um, cause that comes back into play. Well, he's got ghost guns for one. <laughs> he's got ghost guns. Uh, and he can talk, he can talk to well, Frank. The judge but... has some like ghost six shooters also. That's true. Uh, and in this universe, yes, ghosts can shoot other ghosts and hurt them. Uh, sensibly kill them. Although what killing a ghost is, who knows? A little open-ended, but, uh, we don't, we don't need to ask too many questions. Yeah. I mean, I guess they establish they either go to heaven or hell when their sort of corporeal ghost yep. form is dead. Um, but so Frank goes to the bathroom. He sees this random guy who's got a number on his head. And uh, we see the Grim Reaper kind of flash rope briefly through the wall. And then he reaches through the mirror and crushes this dude's heart. And this is when we get the first effect of like the tunnel of light leading up to heaven. Because you see this guy's ghost floating up and he goes, Mom. And then... You know, it's also just kind of brutal, like to, if, the way they stage it. You know, it's given that everything until now has been pretty lighthearted. This is really the first actual like real violence that you see. And, you know, it, it gets kind of dark. Yeah, they actually show it. I mean, they've they've said what's been happening, but they haven't showed it. Like even Ray's death happens mm-hmm. off screen. Uh, but this is the first time they actually show like the groom or the death character, the Grim Reaper character, just like reaching into this guy's heart and just crushing his heart until he dies. Yeah, and so Michael J. Fox is kind of cowering in a in a bathroom stall for a second, and then he kind of realizes what's going on, and you, you get the sense that he's trying to help save this guy, but he also just doesn't know what the hell to do because this is you know a ghost of some kind that he presumably can't do a whole lot to. Um, but then he runs out, uh, basically in a panic, and um, yeah, I mean, because he on his end he's trying to stop this Grim Reaper character from killing people, but to everyone else it just looks like he's going to places and people are dying and then he's running away. Yeah. Yeah. And we've already had the sheriff involved because the sheriff was talking to Frank in the cemetery, talking about these heart attacks too. But then there's also this cloud of suspicion over Frank Bannister's character, you know, the, the mysterious circumstances of his wife's death and all that. So him running away from the restaurant, you know, he knows they're going to find a dead body shortly and he was in the same bathroom. So he's, he's trying to get away from the scene so that he can, save himself, first of all, from getting arrested, uh, but also presumably to try to do something about, try to figure out what's going on with this death character. And he encounters him on the road. Yeah, and we didn't really establish it, but um, you do find out that Frank Bannister's wife had a number carved into her forehead. So before you think, oh, you know, drunk driving accident, tragic. But like after that, you wonder like, well, why did she have a number carved in her forehead? So that sort of lends a little bit of suspicion to the Frank character, even though there's not much suspicion. You get the sense somebody yeah. else did But that. some of the people around town seem to not trust him for a variety of reasons. Uh, and there still is the uncertainty. <laughs> some reasons that are fair. I yeah. mean, for some reasons that are fair, like he drives like a maniac. Uh, but so, yes. So 
Uh, he's driving around trying to get to this uh, Grim Reaper character. And it's the sort of, it's a pretty neat scene where, you know, he's driving his crappy old jalopy and the ghosts are with him. And we're seeing this wraith-like figure in the cowl jumping from tree to tree and flying around. And uh, eventually we see another tunnel of light open in the museum. So he heads to the museum. I think that's a little bit, um, there's there's a scene at the cop station where we meet Dammers before that happens, if I'm remembering right. Oh, right, yeah. Well, this is after the dinner at uh, Excalibur, I believe it's called. So uh, Lucy's getting interviewed by uh, Dammers, um, which I think is supposed to intentionally sound like Dahmer. But I'm not. I couldn't be sure. <laughs> I didn't think of that. But either way, that Jeffrey Coombs character is a, is a weird, creepy guy. He's a weird. He's got weird hair. He looks like he has black eyes. He looks kind of <laughs> Hitlerish too. Like I just. I, yeah, he sort of got the Hitler youth haircut going on. Later on, we do see he has a swastika tattooed on his palm. Uh, but ostensibly, that's because he was a sex slave for the Manson family cult. Which, you know, fun backstory. <laughs> These things happen, you know. I mean, Yeah, it is interesting that this sort of has like this lighthearted vibe sometimes, but then other times it's like, I was a sex slave for fucking uh, Charles Manson. And it gets like really heavy. Yeah, there's all, the, all kinds of weird uh, curveballs that are not at all realistic, but they all kind of just congeal to this character to explain how weird he is. And he's, he's basically got social anxiety not just social anxiety, but but to a cartoonish degree, and like he gets terrified anytime a woman yells at him. Like he can't be he can't be in the same room as a woman yelling at him, or he has to yeah. throw up yeah. that kind of stuff. Uh, but so he basically goes into the backstory of how Frank uh, and his wife had an argument, and how ultimately Frank ended up driving his car off the road, and his wife died, and how there was a number carved in her forehead, and they never found the exacto knife that he had in his toolbox insinuating that maybe he carved the number himself. Yeah, and he, he passes himself off as like this expert that has been, you know, specializing in the occult and has a, a full dossier on, on this nobody Frank Bannister. And he's, you know, he's the special agent and he's all of a sudden interested in Frank Bannister of all people. Uh, but you get the impression that he's been, you know, kind of like, kind of like the funny version of the, the traumatic experiences of Russ Cole and true detective where he's just fucked up from undercover experience. You get the feeling that this guy has been in, investigating deep into the occult for so long that it has just really warped the hell out of him. Only they make it mostly funny uh, instead of really dark. It's too ridiculous to be true. Yeah, like a funny cartoonish version instead of a like super realistic, yeah. like I'm dead inside version. Uh, but anyway, we get to the museum. Uh, the woman from the newspaper is there and obviously she's, you know, there's a dead person there and she sees... Frank show up and she starts yelling that he's a murderer. The cops show up. They pull guns on him. Uh, at some point, the Grim Reaper character shows up and Frank sees that character. But then the judge comes by with six shooters and starts shooting him. There's a pretty chaotic scene in the museum, which uh, the Frank showed up there because he saw that that beam of light from the sky. And so he, th- he thinks there's something mysterious or something. You know, the people there are in danger from this soul collector character. Um and then, yeah, there, it's just it's chaotic. People think that he's probably the person who murdered that person in the bathroom earlier that night. Uh, yeah. And so, like, he tries to warn Magda because he sees a number carved into her forehead, but she takes it as a threat. Uh, and so. Right. And he realizes he's not sure how he's going to save her unless he can literally physically take her. So he punches her <laughs> in the face and knocks her out. And 
runs off to his car and zooms away, which understandably, to those who can't see the ghosts in the Grim Reaper, looks pretty bad. Yeah, it's kind of like a, a cartoonish uh, Keystone Cops type of scene where the cops are, sh- are after Frank. Frank is after Magda. Ghosts are all around. The the good ghosts are distracting and, and doing stuff. And, and the evil death characters going around trying to take people's souls. So there's a lot going on in a very confined space with a lot of wealthy or not wealthy, valuable, um, you know, cultural artifacts. Uh, so that's that's a madcap scene. A lot going on there. That was fun. And uh, and it. Yep, and um, so Frank is driving, the Grim Reaper hops on his car, he's screaming at Magda to get down, and then we sort of have this intercutting of him, because it's the same road that he crashed his car on initially with his wife. You'd think he would have learned by now. You'd think. uh, But so he, you know, as expected, he runs this new car off the road. Just like before. Um, Just like before, uh, Magda's crawling out. understandably thinking that Frank wants to murder her. And then the Grim Reaper ends up catching her and squeezing her heart and she dies. And he's like sort of hops to try to stop the Grim Reaper character a little too late. So when Magda's ghost kind of corporealizes, she sees him on top of her and she understandably is like, you're a murderer. Yep. So she's yelling at that, yelling Uh, that at him as she goes up through the tunnel that takes her to the other side. Yeah. Um, and Sort of a funny scene after this where we're back in the police station and uh, Dammer's character is like, we're probably not going to see Frank because he's cunning. He's not going to come back. And Frank just walks into the police station like, yeah, Magda's dead. <laughs> yeah, you get the impression that this guy is not quite the expert that uh, he passes himself off as. No, but anyway, uh, Lucy shows up at some point and she's like, what are you doing, Frank? You didn't have anything to do with this. And you get the sense he's trying to protect everybody. So he says, go home, Lucy. Like, you don't know anything about me. And we get this. After that, we get this great scene with Dammers and um, Frank. Where Dammers just goes completely off the rails into like, you know, are, are you familiar with this case of someone who was able to crush the heart of a frog? And all of this weird crap that he knows about. um I guess, psychic abilities to crush hearts. (laughs) Yeah, you get the sense that he's been researching all this a lot, and he knows stuff that Frank doesn't, but also what he knows might be complete nonsense. So, like, it it really, you have no idea exactly where it's going. And, you know, thus thus is one of, begins one of the weird Dammer scenes where, you know, Frank is just distraught. Like he's, he doesn't, I don't think he really thinks he's killed these people, but he feels like he, he's responsible because he couldn't stop the Grim Reaper character. So he's, he's kind of losing his shit and Dammer starts losing his shit because he thinks he's trying to like crush his heart and he like rips off his shirt and he's like, too bad because I've got a lead vest plate. And sort of the beginning of like, you knew he was weird, but he gets like progressively Yeah, weirder. well, it, it reminds me of the piece that Marty McFly uses in Back to the Future 3 during the suit out. <laughs> I wonder if that was an, an intentional reference there. It might be, yeah. No, that's true. Um, oh, and that reminds me, earlier in the movie, uh, there is, when she's watching the documentary, there's a VHS copy of Heavenly Creatures next to the TV. Oh, I didn't notice that. <laughs> I great. caught that, and that's the first time I've ever caught that. So, well, glad you, I remembered that. One thing that's interesting that's a is weird little, not that weird, but it's a neat little Easter egg. 
that is a nice Easter egg. I, I was a huge fan of Heavenly Creatures. I, sh- I should say that's probably my favorite Peter Jackson movie, and I used to watch yeah, it. Yeah, I'd like, love to cover it at some point. I think it's a neat movie because it just gets into the nature of like fantasy and storytelling, and like the power of stories to like you know keep people like entertained and joyous. Yeah. Yeah, but actually the one of the leads in that, Melanie Linsky, I think I saw her name in the cast list for the Frighteners. Yeah, that's it, Melanie yeah, Linsky. So, so she has a bit part, I think, in the Frighteners, and then also... Yeah, she plays a cop. I don't even think she has a line, but I saw <laughs> and her. And then Dr. Yeah. Linsky might be named after her for all I know. I don't know, but... Oh, yeah, maybe. I didn't even think about that. Um, <clears throat> but so... Uh, shortly after that, Frank is in a jail cell... Um, we're sort of intercutting between Frank and the jail cell and the ghost talking to him and Lucy's character going to visit his house, unaware that her dead husband is in the seat with her or in the car with her rather. Yeah. Ray's. And, uh, good. Yeah. Ray's doing his typical douche thing just as a ghost. Yeah. He's along for the ride and just kind of complaining or being like, Oh, why are you doing this? Why don't you forget about this guy or blah, blah, blah. And he's just, he won't shut up and he just, it's very obvious that he's not really thinking a whole lot about it, uh, about the situation as it is, uh, but she can't see any of this either. So like, it, it's revealed that I think it's been revealed by now that Frank Bannister, part of the reason he can see ghosts is because he was in a traumatic injury from that car accident. And so he might have partially crossed over. Right. Yeah. He almost died, basically. And that's the only reason yeah. he can see them. Um, but yeah. So at some point, Lucy... I actually forget when she goes to his house. I think she's just trying to find some clues as to what's happening. Yeah, she thinks that he's, you know, basically a good guy, it seems like. And she's trying to help. Like, he's just turned himself into jail. So she's trying. I think she's just trying to basically exonerate him or get him off the hook in some way. Um, But she sees there that, you know, the basketball court that he had been building for for himself instead of his wife's garden has been converted into a garden. So they, they connect the backstory a little bit to the the changes in the house that he's been able to do after she died. Yeah, and then we have another douche Ray moment where he's like, perfectly good basketball court. (laughs) Ruined. So you don't feel so bad when he inevitably gets killed. Yeah, but while uh, while Lucy's there, uh, the phone rings, or I think the voicemail picks up, and it's Mrs. Bradley from the opening scene is calling Frank Bannister saying that Patricia, the daughter, has brought evil into the house. And so she's basically asking for his help because uh, I guess she takes him legitimately. And, um, yeah. and so Lucy oh, goes and out that's, there. Yeah, and that's what prompts Lucy to um, – I, for, I, I forget if she visits Frank in prison first or if she visits uh, Patricia first. I think she goes straight from Bannister's house over to – to check on Patricia because she still thinks this is an abusive situation. And so while she's talking to Patricia uh, is when, you know, there's simultaneously those ghosts uh, talking to Frank in in his jail cell, if I'm remembering right. Yeah. But anyway, so, uh, you know, Lucy is talking with Patricia um, and uh, I get a little hate. I mean, admittedly, you know, it's like she visits she visits Patricia, the old mother is there, and sort of goes more into, like, you know, my daughter's a murderer. Well, before the before the mother shows up, um, she she asks about an urn that Patricia says, uh, I believe, was her father's urn. It's her father's ashes. Right. She claims her father killed himself, and then the ashes are in the urn, and they keep it in her room so her mother can remind her of what she did. 
Yeah. And, you know, but then while, while Lucy's there, the mother comes back. And you know, so Patricia tells her to hide in this big wardrobe, uh, which is where she finds a box cutter that appears to have belonged to Frank, which we've learned there was a box cutter missing from the scene of his right, wife. Yeah. Cause it's got his initials on it. Yeah. And then also while we're there, the collector shows up and, uh, and takes Ray. Yeah. He kills Ray, which, uh, it's hard to care that much, honestly. <laughs> it's hard to Yeah, nobody's really going to mourn Ray, and that's part of the theme of the... Well, they, they mentioned at some point that he's... You know, nobody's going to go to his funeral or, or, I don't know, something like that. They allude to the fact that he's been, he's been kind of rotten in life, and, you know, there's there's your lesson. Be nice to people or else no one's going to come to your funeral or something like and that. Then, uh, you know, groom reaper will kill your ghost, yeah. Um, but so Lucy heads to the jail to talk to Frank, basically saying... You know, I found your box cutter in the in their house. What's up with that? Uh, and this is when um, the collector shows up again to try to kill Lucy, and the ghosts um, kind of sacrifice themselves so that Frank and Lucy can get away. Yeah, they're in the midst of a romantic, what seems to be a romantic moment. I think they kiss or they're about to or something like that. Yeah, like, I think and, they uh, he sees the number carved into her forehead all of a sudden, and he's like. You know, freaking out because they're in a tiny little jail cell together. So what's he going to do if, if death shows up and takes her? Uh, so the ghosts, yeah, the ghosts distract death while he uh, she she bangs on the door for help because the cops can't hear what's going on. They don't you know, they don't know anything about what's going on. So the she gets let out or, you know, one of the cops opens the door and he kicks it open on the cop. I forget exactly what happens. Yeah. And Stuart um, Stuart ends up getting killed by the uh, the Grim Reaper. It, I think it's implied that Cyrus also gets killed. Yeah, I mean, he dies at some point. Because I don't, I don't think you see him after that scene. Sounds right to me. Uh, but anyway, so we, yeah, so we get, um, what the hell happens from here? Well, Stuart gets taken and they manage to escape. Uh, they, they encounter Dammers in the hallway, but like Lucy fakes him out in some way and like knocks him down or, or she gets past him somehow and she pulls a gun on him, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah, yeah. And so uh, they're outside and Frank in this sort of moment of desperation, puts this gun to his head and he's like, I need to have an out-of-body experience to save everybody. But Lucy says, no, there's there's a way we can do it where we can bring you back. So she uh, brings him to this place where she can basically freeze him so that his heart stops for a momentary amount of time. So he can become a ghost and go explore and, and then she can bring him back before the... Uh, I I think it's like nine 20. minutes or something like that. They say I think that she your said heart twenty. Can... Like he can be dead for up to twenty minutes. If I remember, I, I could be wrong, but I think it's twenty. Maybe. Anyway, there's a certain amount of time he can be dead. So he is, you know, he dies and he goes to the. Uh, he goes to a couple places. The main one I think is the cemetery. Yep. And he's following this Grim Reaper character, and then we get the big reveal once he catches this character that. It's actually Johnny Bartlett's ghost, and he's been masquerading as this sort of Grim Reaper character to continue his work and kill more people. And in the meantime, while Frank is in a freezer, uh, Dammers shows up and basically locks him in there and abducts Lucy and uh, and takes her on a ride. Indeed. And um, he ends up going to the cemetery, and we get another really weird Dammers scene where we see the uh, swastika on his palm and... <laughs> Lucy sees it and to explain he goes I was you know undercover in the Manson cult and I was their sex slave for six months 
And then I was, and he explains all these other cults he was in. He gets out of the car and like rips his shirt off again, which is just a weird thing he does to reveal all these weird scars and uh, he's got all kinds of weird, you know, pentagrams carved into his skin and things of that nature. And he just has this really weird monologue about how he's like a his body is like a monument of pain, but pain clears the mind and he has psychic powers now <laughs> or something. And this is when it is a bit much. Oh, you know what? I think it's a bit much. No, no, no. This is Frank's ghost, right? That does this. So Frank ends up in the car, turns it on, uh, ends up backing it away from Dammers. Uh, allowing Lucy to escape and get back to the hospital where he is so she can revive him before he, he'll be dead permanently. And he's just about to kill the ghost of um, Johnny Bartlett when she shocks him back to life and he isn't able to do it. Yep, that's rough when that happens. But uh, yeah, I mean, he also, he, Bannister did manage to, to stop death from killing Lucy uh, while... While all this was going on in the background with Dammers abducting her and stuff. Yeah, no, that's true. So that's that's kind of a development there because they've they had that near romantic moment right, right before the the number carved got carved into Lucy's head. Uh, so you know Frank saves her. It seems like everything's going in the right direction. Um, but when the ghost of Frank Bannister tr- starts to drive away, uh, it, he's disrupted by Arlie Army's character who comes back and he sh- and shoots death with machine guns. Um, and that's that's what actually reveals the Johnny Bartlett thing is when he's getting shot up by Arlie Army. Right, yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, I believe from here, Lucy says we have to go talk with Patricia again since they now know it's Johnny Bartlett's ghost doing everything. And they don't know yet that Patricia and Johnny Bartlett were so, you know, like an actual couple. Yeah. Supposedly Patricia was in love with him. Is, yeah, is that's the rumor. the rumor, but it was never substantiated. So some people played it off like, well, she was a minor that maybe had a gun pointed at her head and she had to do this stuff under Duras. But anyway, so they go to the house and uh, they get separated somehow. I don't remember why. I think it's because Frank is just still recovering, maybe. I don't, yeah, I don't know. Lucy goes to rescue Patricia on her own at first. And I think maybe Bannister's just tied up with trying to. I don't know, battle. Um, yeah, get his limbs working again. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I don't remember that part. Um, but so she's there, and uh, we have this great scene where Patricia's like, oh, my mother's upstairs. Let's wait for my mother. Um, and you eventually sort of see Johnny Bartlett behind uh, Lucy's character, and like Patricia's sort of like making like faces at him, like, you know, like, go on. Because you find out they... You know, they do communicate still. Like, uh, Patricia can see Johnny Bartlett, and she's been helping him. Yeah, yeah, there's this whole very tense conversation with Lucy, where Lucy's trying to help her. The audience is gradually less sure if Patricia's innocent, and more sure that she's probably guilty, but but everything she phrases is kind of, has a double meaning, depending on if Lucy's hearing it, or if Johnny Bartlett's ghost is hearing it. But Lucy can't see that Johnny Bartlett's there. So that was actually one of the better horror scenes, actually. Like, it was a very tense moment, even though it was also kind of funny. Yeah, it was tense. Um, And then, you know, Patricia leaves the room, and that's when she, like, drops the facade, and she's like, this fucking goody two-shoes, like, let's just kill her. And you sort of get to see the dynamic between these two, between Johnny Bartlett and uh, Lucy, or sorry, Patricia, uh, where he's like, 
talking about their numbers in like a very like sports fanatic type of way. They're like a natural born killer. Like he goes couple. through the high scores. He's like, we've got eight more than Gacy. And if we just get this many more, we'll have more than Bundy. Yeah. And at, at that um, point, Patricia is revealed to be all in on, and she just wants to kill a bunch of people with him. And it, it feels very natural born killers, Mickey and Mallory. Like they're just a couple on a wild it time. Does. And there's this really weird scene where she gets a butcher knife and he's like, it's almost like a sex game. Like she stabs him and he's like, oh yeah. Like, <laughs> it's very yep. odd. There's a very oddly sexual relationship with them. Not oddly sexual in that they're sexually involved, but more that they like kind of manifest in like physical violent acts. Yeah. It's almost like a parody of that scene in Darling actually that we talked about. Yeah, a little bit. Um, but so thus begins the sort of cat and mouse between um, Patricia and Johnny Bartlett trying to kill Lucy. And eventually Frank shows up. Um, they figure out that the urn is actually they're the ashes of Johnny Bartlett, which one would wonder how she got those. That's a good question. I'm not going to ask too many of those. Like though. was someone at a at the crematorium like. Hey, this guy that you murdered people with, I thought you should have his ashes. <laughs> who knows? One would think they would just get rid of those. But anyway, who knows? Um, so this is our MacGuffin, the ashes of Johnny Bartlett. And they need to, Frank and Lucy need to get them to consecrated ground, holy ground. Because if they get loose, Johnny is just officially loose. They got to get him to the other side. Which is a little confusing because wasn't he already Basically, loose? but he would be loose in a different i have no idea i'm not even going to pretend to understand it doesn't matter it's fine it doesn't really matter they just need to get these ashes away um this is probably my favorite scene in the whole movie is this ending kind of set piece in the abandoned asylum yeah it's great it's and it's the place where the original shoot up happened it's just really well put together and very yeah well it's, it's uh, like legitimately tense because as soon as they get in there um frank starts having these visions of like how it used to look in the past and basically the day of the murders, so, but, you know, Lucy and him are both there, and, like, he's also there in the present. So he's sort of, like, hopping in and out of this weird kind of flashback, but his, you know, he's still there, so Lucy has to worry about him being there and kind of zapping back out of consciousness. Yeah, it, it was really actually pretty creepy when the way they staged the, the mass shooting overlaid with the, the abandoned hospital facilities because like you know you got to think about it being 1996 and yeah i mean we've had the u.s has had some mass shootings at that point but nothing like in 2021 we're still seeing them and there's so many more of them they had they happen more frequently than they did in 1996 and so like it i think it reads very differently today than it would back yeah, then. yeah yeah but i mean this is only a few years before columbine yeah, two years, I think. and a number of other things but yeah this was very creepy um and again though i think the shooting aspect is I mean, don't quote me on this, but I want to say Starkweather was the one that climbed up on a clock tower or a watchtower and started picking people off with a rifle. Uh, no, that was uh, oh geez, who was that? Charles Whitman. Oh, that was Whitman. That was Whitman. Okay, I don't remember who yeah, Starkweather Stark was. Weather I mean, whatever. I I read that they based it the the couple off of Starkweather and another girl that was with him. Okay. But I don't actually remember whether he used a knife or a gun or whatever. But anyway, yeah. So Johnny Bartlett does use a rifle. Or a, I think it's a shotgun, maybe. A shotgun? A shotgun, yeah. A shotgun. And um, we're kind of cutting in between. And there's this 
it's not much of a reveal now, but we see, you know, 15-year-old Patricia, and she is, like, very much involved. Like, there's no doubt. Like, she is, like, actively involved in murdering people with yeah, him. Yeah, she's just as deranged as she was. In- it's not like she's, you know, getting a gun held to her head. Like, she's very much in love with Johnny and wants to be killing these people. And we're cutting between her as a 15-year-old and her now in the present with a shotgun with yeah, a flashlight Yeah, she followed them to the abandoned hospital, so that she's stalking them through the through the ruins of it and it, yeah it's just well put together yeah i agree it was it was a great closing concluding scene or almost concluding at some point dammers shows up and you know frank is like right he's basically in the chapel but then something he steps on a loose plank that launches the urn out of the chapel into the hand of dammers yep who says let me guess you have to get this to consecrated <laughs> ground or ultimate evil will be released and he intentionally empties the urn, and you see Johnny's ghost just sort of whoa, like fly away. And, uh, you know, Frank's about to just whoop Dammer's ass, because at this point, why not? Yeah. When he reveals he has an Uzi and he shoots him in the arm. Didn't expect him to have an Uzi. That was definitely a little surprising. No, it's well done, because, you, you know, he's sort of this weirdly timid incredibly anxious neurotic character but then like by the end of this movie it's like he's got guns so he's been preparing for this moment he has um and he you know he shoots uh frank and then there's this well um choreographed sort of scene where frank is banging is backing up from dammers who has the uzi and then behind him he notices that uh patricia is there with the shotgun and he also notices that the ground underneath him is sort of weak so he realizes if he falls, he's going to be able to fall through the floor. So right before, um, right before Patricia shoots him, he dives down. She ends up shooting Dammers in the head, and there's this neat effect where his head just completely explodes, and then the ghost head just pops up. <laughs> yep. Um, and he falls through like four flights of like floor. Somehow doesn't die. <laughs> they definitely die. made him crash through a lot of stories of hospital. <laughs> Yeah, um, and so he's in the basement, and we continue with this flashback stuff where he's seeing Patricia and Johnny, like, you know, making out in this, I I think it's the morgue? That that one's a little bit faded from memory by now. It's like a basement morgue or something like that, but so they're making out, and at some point, Lucy comes down to try to help him, and uh, Patricia follows her, and she... I want to say she chokes Frank to death with the shotgun. Yeah, I think that's what happens. Uh, and it, it sends Frank up through the tunnel uh, in, into the afterlife. Uh, but what he does is um, he manages to get a hold of Patricia's, I guess, ghost or soul as he's going up. And he kind of steals her to lure Johnny away from the physical plane. So Johnny jumps into the tunnel and there's this sort of like chase scene in the tunnel to heaven, which is, I think, pretty neat. I haven't seen anything like that since. Yeah, it was cool. I mean, it does probably stand out a little bit more as CGI than the ghost effects, but, you know, it's nice. You know, it didn't really pull me out of anything. Anything with the No, and um, eventually Frank basically gets to heaven and he's like, he he gets, Patricia gets loose and he's going to go to try to get her and um, Cyrus and Stuart, are, you know, they're in heaven and they're all dapper and he's finally, uh, Cyrus finally has his cigars and Stuart's in like a cool leather jacket. <laughs> but they're like, you don't want to see this. And 
this tunnel of light becomes this tunnel of like weird little hell blood snakes or worms that kind of loop themselves around and inside of Johnny and Patricia's bodies. And they get, you know, swallowed by this worm, which also made me think of Beetlejuice, actually. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it basically is this big hell worm that swallows them whole and then travels down in this fiery pit of hell. And um, Cyrus explains, like, yeah, they're going to hell. That was easy. Why couldn't we have done that before? <laughs> right? It's fairly easy. But, um, yeah, so, I mean, you know, normally... I. I can find this very hokey when it's the, like, I'm in heaven now scenes, but it fits with this movie. Yeah, the whole movie's got enough of a, a comedic aspect to it that it's just like, eh, okay, we're chilling in heaven. One wonders where the judge is. <laughs> that was one thing I wondered, especially every time now I watch it, I'm like, did he just go to hell <laughs> well, or he something? Like, it's, uh, maybe he was a hanging judge. <laughs> or he's, I mean, he was. he's probably killed some people back in, back in the Wild West at some point. He's probably done some bad. I mean, he definitely does some questionable shit with a mummy, so. <laughs> yeah. That was that was an uncomfortable joke. Yeah, it was <laughs> uncomfortable. Yeah, that reminds me of I w- I was watching Rush Hour three the other day, and they have a Roman Polanski um, cameo in it, Oof. and it was like, Ugh. and it's Oof. like he plays like he gives them cavity searches, and I was like, wow, that has not aged well. Yeah, but also this was two thousand seven, so it's like y'all must have known this wouldn't age well either. That is definitely true. Yeah, but anyway, not Rush Hour three. We're talking about uh, fucking the Frighteners, and yeah, but so. Um, <laughs> Cyrus and Stuart are like, it's pretty great up here. Stuart's the ladies' man in heaven. Cyrus has the finest cigars, and he can finally dress normally, like it's not the 70s. And uh, Frank sees his dead wife, who basically tells him it's not your time yet. And there is... She wants him to live his life. Yeah, you know, go enjoy your life. And I've seen this movie so many times, so every time this happens, I giggle a little bit, just because of Michael J. Fox's delivery on it. But when he gets pushed, like, out of heaven, he just goes like, whoa. (laughs) It's just, I don't know. It just always makes me laugh. <laughs> I'm just like, it's kind of Keanu Reevesy. It's a little like, understated, Whoa. but yeah. You know. uh, but anyway, you know, he, you know, and we cut to, I want to say a year later. Uh, we cut to later and we see that uh, there's a, you know, they're knocking down uh, Frank's house finally. And he seems to be together with Lucy, which was highly telegraphed. Um, but so yeah, they're having like a little picnic lunch, watching his house getting knocked down or yeah. his old house, one assumes. And the sheriff comes by and, uh, it's sort of, yeah, it is like an epilogue. He's like, you know, uh, basically, what does he say? I don't even remember now. He says he's going to go on vacation and he does want to write a book with, uh, Frank. He says something else in between, like, I don't know. Oh, something about Ouija boards, like, um... Patricia had bought a whole bunch of Ouija boards. Oh, okay, and he's like, "Do you know anything and about these?" That's how she. Did, <laughs> that's how she got in touch with Johnny Bartlett. Which one wonders how? How would the sheriff know that though? Because he can't see ghosts. Ah, uh, that's a good question. But again, uh, it doesn't. It's a good movie, matter but sometimes if you think about it too hard, <laughs> you're like, "How does that work?" Um, but anyway, and uh, Frank makes a joke about, "Well, you got your guardian angel there," and. Sheriff turns around, doesn't see anybody in his car, and he's like, oh, ha, ha, and then we cut to the back of the car, and that's where Dammers is as a ghost. Yep, so he's clearly been sentenced to uh, some kind of duty that he is not uh, looking forward to. Yep, and uh, that's when Lucy says, oh, he looks pissed, and <laughs> Frank's like, whoa, and she's like, you know, if people have had near-death experiences, sometimes they can see ghosts, and she sort of grabs the picnic blanket and Sort of mimics a cowl with like the Grim Reaper and starts chasing him around. 
cut to cover band doing Don't Fear the Reaper and credits. Yeah, that was not a I I was not a fan of that cover song, I gotta say. I thought it was fine. I mean I can understand why they weren't able to get Blue Oyster Cult. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's true. It's I think that's is that one of the most heavily used songs in movies though? Like God, that's that's been I don't know. Maybe. I mean I always associated with the stand from the nineties, but uh I don't know. I feel like I've heard it everywhere, so it was a little weird to hear that somebody went with a cover of it when you know, instead well, of something I, else. But. I mean I looked up the band and it's like it's it might not be a band from New Zealand, but it sounds like it could be a band from New Zealand based on the band's name, which of course I forget what the band's name is now, but so maybe it was a band that Peter Jackson was friends with, who knows. Could be. Well, in any case, it's not that big of a deal either way. No, and yeah, that's the end of the movie. Um I mean, I've said this already. I like this movie. Yeah, it's just a good, fun, solid two hours of entertainment. You know, it's not uh, it's not heavy and weighty like Lord of the Rings or heavy Heavenly Creatures. Uh, and yeah, I think what I appreciate about it is it sort of it like speaks to another time of filmmaking when, as much as I love the current like a twenty four like super duper heavy psychological horror with an intense character study. It's nice sometimes to just go back to like a fun horror movie. Yeah. And this was the same year that Scream came out. So there was a lot of like fun being had with horror movies that, you know, I can't. I mean, obviously, horror comedies have existed for almost as long, probably about as long as horror has and comedy has. But uh, there's there's a lightheartedness to it that I think comes from the 90s that you don't really get today. Like even something like. I don't know, Zombieland, it's, it's, it feels like it's trying very hard to be a horror comedy. Yeah, there's still sort of a heaviness to it at times, yeah. Or like Tucker and Dale versus Evil, which is like fun, but like gets really gory. Yeah, yeah, I mean, there's a, an attempt to make it like both very horrifying and very funny, whereas the Frighteners kind of just walks down the middle. It's not like super scary, but it has a few scary moments. It's not hilarious all the time, but it's got enough laughs for it to be a comedy. You know, it's it's a little bit toned down compared to what I think they go yeah, for today. Yeah, I mean, like, one wonders what it would have been like if it was officially a Tales from the Crypt spinoff movie. Like, because I, I could sort of see it if you made it, like, a lot more gory and, like, maybe threw some nudity in there. and Yeah. But I, I do kind of like that it wasn't that. Because we already have, like, Bordello of Blood and Demon Knight or whatever the hell the other one is. Yeah, and probably also, like... I mean, Peter Jackson's earlier stuff was Splatterfest, and maybe he's, you know, you can see that that's really not the direction he wants to do anything in anymore by this point. No, no. Um, but I, you know, yeah, I do think it holds up as a film. I would recommend it. Um, it's on streaming services. It's not free. I think you'd have to pay to rent it, but it's not too bad. It's like a typical kind of $4 thing, I think. Yeah, actually, I think it's on Stars if you have that channel uh, through Amazon. Oh, is it? Yeah, okay. I did notice it was one of those premium subscription things on Hulu. Okay. So if you happen to have an add-on, or if you have just stars in general. Yeah, I mean, I'd recommend it for anybody. Like, I mean, not anybody, but it's almost anybody can watch this probably and find some moments to enjoy at, at the very least. I have a hard time imagining somebody who just, like, hates this movie, you know, even if you, know, even if you don't love it. Yeah, and I will say, you know, it, it there is a rewatchability to it, like... You can go into no. I mean, I went into it this time knowing exactly what was going to happen, and I still enjoyed myself as I have the times before where I knew exactly what was going to happen and still enjoy myself. Yep, and there's probably gags that it is. Yeah, it's sort of like Back to the Future, where it's like you can just rewatch it, like you know what's happening, but it's still just enjoyable. Yep, everything moves pretty snappy. You know, there's really nothing dreary uh, that that lags or anything, and you know, it's just fun to have on anytime. I think I've I've, I've caught bits and pieces of it off and on over the years. 
Uh, and it's it's one of those things that I just haven't really sat down very often to watch start to finish. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I think that's going to wrap it up. So with that, um, Chris, do you have anything you want to promote or plug? Uh, well, my latest fiction is in Dim Shores Presents Volume 1. The story is called Many Lives Theory. That's the most recent happenings for me. All right, cool. Yeah, I don't normally mention my writing, but what the hell. I'm going to have a story called Cadejo in, uh, in an anthology edited by the great William T., which goes to uh, support sex workers, and it's called the, I believe it's the Big Book of Little Deaths. Um, so I'm excited for that, and I, I should have a story coming out in a Matthew M. Bartlett, might as well mention the Bartlett connection, a Matthew M. Bartlett-themed um, tribute anthology. I should have a story coming out in that, which I collaborated with someone on. I don't know if Brian wants to say that it was him, but apparently I just said this, so... <laughs> It'll be good either way. That uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of Matthew Bartlett's work, and I'm a big fan of a lot of the writers who are going to be in that. So yeah, so it should, should go be buy fun. Um, so yeah, that's what I do when I'm not covering movies. Uh, but so anyway, for the uh, for the show on Twitter at Celluloid Sits, uh, Anchor.fm slash Celluloid Sits. That's our official hub. We have a YouTube channel. It's not entirely up to date, but I've got a lot of the episodes on there. So if you're on YouTube a lot, and that's your preferred way. Eventually, this will end up on YouTube as well. And uh, we do have a Patreon. I've given up pretending I'm going to update it until I get anyone supporting me on it. <laughs> but in theory, there will be episodes that are specifically Patreon-based. Brian and I were talking about maybe doing a torture porn-themed episode. Maybe we could have you on that. Sure. Cool. And uh, yeah, I think that's going to wrap it up. So with that, uh, you know, I'm Sean M. Thompson. I'm Christopher Burke. And, uh, you know... Careful of the Grim Reaper. Stay frightened. <laughs>